Chapter 3, Part 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 3, Part 1, Cities and Towns. Quote, it is indeed a thrilling thought for a man of the elder England to see what a home the newest home of his people is. The heart swells, the pride of kinship rises, as he sees that it is his own folk which has done more than any other folk to replenish the earth and to subdue it. He is no Englishman at heart. He has no true feeling of the abiding tie of kindred who deems that the glory and greatness of the child is other than part of the glory and greatness of the parent. Unquote. Freeman. America forms no exception to the rule that population in civilized lands gravitates towards great centers. Though her immense agricultural development might have been expected to arrest this movement, and divert population to the rural districts, such has not been the case. Despite the temptations to rural life offered by fertile land at nominal prices, towns have grown during the last half century much faster than the country. The dull, dreary round of life upon the farm is found intolerable, by the young man whose intellectual faculties have been awakened by education. The active mind seeks companionship with other minds and the pleasurable excitements of city life. Most great men, it is true, have been born and brought up in the country, but it is equally true that very few great men have remained there beyond their teens. The country is just the place for the extremes of life. At the beginning, in childhood and early youth, when the body is to be nurtured, and also at the end, when nature turns again to earth in ripe old age and retires from the fray to ruminate in sober thought on all he's seen and heard and wrought. In 1830, only six and a half percent of the population lived in towns of 8,000 inhabitants and upwards. In 1880, the proportion had risen to 22 percent. Thus, nearly one person in every four in America is now a member of a hive of more than 8,000 human beings. Fifty years ago, this was true of but one in 15, for 14 out of 15 lived in the country or in small villages. This is a stupendous change and marks the development of the Republic from the first stage of homogeneity of pastoral pursuits into the heterogeneous occupations of a more highly civilized state. The nation is now complete, as it were, in itself, and ready for independent action. Its mechanical and inventive genius has full scope in the thousand and one diversified pursuits 
which a civilized community necessarily creates, and which necessitate the gathering of men together in masses. The American, however, need not fear the unhealthy or abnormal growth of cities. He need not imitate the example of those who advocated legislative measures to prevent the growth of London, which Cobbett called a wart upon the hand of England. The free play of economic laws is keeping all quite right, for the town gained upon the country population only one-fourth as fast during the last decade, 1870 to 1880, as in the previous one. Oh, these grand, immutable, all-wise laws of natural forces, how perfectly they work, if human legislators would only let them alone. But no, they must be tinkering. One day they would protect the balance of power in Europe by keeping weak, small areas apart and independent, an impossible task, for petty states must merge into the greater. Political is as certain as physical gravitation. The next day it is silver in America, which our sage rulers would make of greater intrinsic value. So our governors all over the world are at Sisyphus's work, ever rolling the stone uphill to see it roll back to its proper bed at the bottom. That the country held its own so well in the competition with the towns during the last decade is partly due to the fact that the enormous profits made under an improved system of agriculture held the rural population to the soil. The general depression of manufactures also checked settlement in towns and forced population into the country. The commercial panic of 1873 drove hundreds of thousands from the crowded cities of the east to the unoccupied plains of the west. Trainload after trainload of native emigrants were to be seen passing west to become farmers. With a return to normal conditions, we may expect to find the towns absorbing much more than an equal share. It is always a result of industrial depression in America that the towns are relieved of surplus population, which in older countries remains in poverty and distress to swell the ranks of the unemployed. Horace Greeley's advice, go west, young man, is followed. One needs, however, to add to it and stay there to complete the matter. The equilibrium is thus restored between producers and consumers, and prosperity to both follows. If there be too much food, it is unprofitable to grow more cereals, and fewer people become farmers. If the market be overstocked with manufacturers, manufacturing becomes unprofitable, and fewer engage in it. The population, meanwhile increasing at the rate of nearly two millions per annum, soon requires the surplus, be it food or manufactures. 
America possesses hundreds of thousands of acres of virgin soil ready for the plow. Like the fabled Antaeus, her power of recuperation lies in the earth. Let her touch but that, and her giant strength is restored. This will continue to be so until her population becomes as dense as that of Europe. According to Dr. Swainson Fisher, there were not in 1835 5,000 white inhabitants in all the vast territory between Lake Michigan and the Pacific Ocean, a region half as large as Europe. Now it is covered with an agricultural population and contains many populous towns, including Chicago, Milwaukee, and St. Paul, to say nothing of the cities of the Pacific coast. Of the state of Wisconsin, occupying a part of this territory, a member of the Wisconsin Historical Society wrote 30 years ago, quote, in the summer of 1836 with a comrade, I camped at the head of Mendota, or Fourth Lake, within six miles of the spot where the capital now stands, 1856, at which time there was not within 20 miles of that point a single white inhabitant, and none within the present limits of Dane County, an area of 1,240 square miles, except one family, unquote. Dane County, then an uninhabited wilderness, contained in 1880 a population of more than 60,000, while Wisconsin itself had a million and a half. In 1880, the density of population in this young state exceeded that of Maine and nearly equaled that of such old settled states as Georgia, Alabama, and West Virginia. The United States had no city in 1830 which could boast a population of a quarter of a million. Even New York had but 202,000. In that year, there were but 14 towns with more than 12,000 inhabitants each. In truth, but 55 years ago, the Republic could boast only of a few villages. In 1880, there were 176 such towns, and today the number exceeds 200. New York City in 1880 was the only millionaire in heads, though Philadelphia now claims that she has reached that distinction. The census of 1880 accredits the Empire City with fewer than a million and a quarter inhabitants. But if the population within a radius of eight miles of the city hall were included, she would be credited with fully two and a quarter millions. Brooklyn, Jersey City, and other suburbs, divided from the city by rivers, are under separate municipal governments. But they are nonetheless outgrowths of the great center. Thus, New York ranks next to monster London as a busy hive of human beings. Every decade sees an addition of half a million people to each of these two vast aggregations of humanity.
the increase of New York in actual figures is equal to that of London, which makes the ratio of increase to population double. While London has taken since 1840 to double her population, New York, including the suburbs, has doubled hers in half that time. So that if the present rate of increase be maintained, 40 years hence, London will have doubled her present population once and New York twice. Their populations will then be about equal. It is a neck-and-neck neck race between the two emporiums which the world of 1920 is to see, with the odds slightly in favor of New York. It is easier for her to double her two than for London to double her four millions, and besides, the goddess Fortune, true to her sex, may confidently be expected to breathe her secret prayers for the younger aspirant. She is fond of youth and fickle, and really seems disposed to be off with the old love, dear old smoky London, and on with the new, bright, rosy, gallant New York. Let us hope she may illustrate another phase not inconsistent with her sex, and continue as hitherto to smile upon both suitors, if Jack has his favorite in every port, surely our goddess may be allowed one in the East and one in the Great West. Of the fifty largest cities of the Union, the least, with a population of 36,000 in 1880, 15 had no existence in 1830. They were not born. Their sites were either the unbroken prairie or an Indian settlement with a fort and a few log huts. Chicago is the most famous example. Fifty years ago, it was a trading post where trappers and Indians bartered their pelts for fire water and ammunition. I knew one of Chicago's first settlers well and have often heard him speak of the little fort and the scattering log huts which marked the city's site some sixty years ago. There was scarcely a white woman in the settlement when he began trading with the Indians. In 1833, the streets of the projected town had been staked out, but no grading had been done, not even a dirt road thrown up. Such, however, was the growth of this little mushroom town, as an early writer calls it, that in 1846 it was noted that eight years ago, 1838, the ground upon which the entire city of Chicago stands could have been brought for a sum now, 1846, demanded for a front of six feet on one of the streets. Tradition tells of an early settler who averred that he had seen the time when he could have bought the whole tarnation swamp for a pair of old boots. To the inquiry, why didn't you? He had the entirely adequate reply. Ah, stranger, I hadn't the boots. How many chances in life do we miss just for the want of the boots?
Moral, get the boots. In 1840, the population of Chicago was 4,500. Ten years later, 30,000. In 10 years more, 112,000. It now exceeds 700,000. This splendid city, the Queen of the West, leads the world in three branches of industry. She is preeminent as a lumber market, as a provision market, and, strange antithesis, as a manufactory of steel rails. Such a combination of greatnesses surely the world has not seen. Her statistics show the receipt of nearly 2,000 million feet of lumber and 900 million shingles per annum. Her yearly receipts of grain approach 200 million bushels. 26 million bushels can be laid away in her 28 elevators, a store which dwarfs the ostentatious garnering of the ancient pharaohs as much as her enormous shipments outnumber the sacks of corn which Joseph's brethren carried away. Last year, she received nearly two million cattle, a million sheep, and five million hogs, more than 25,000 animals per day, so that their marches into Chicago every day in the year, Sundays and Saturdays included, a procession of victims two miles and a half long, ten animals abreast. The cattle and hogs were mostly transformed into provisions before leaving Chicago. The year 1881 was an exceptionally good year for pork packers, but a bad one for the hogs. Five and three-quarter millions fell in Chicago alone an average of 19,000 a day. The fittest place for man to die is where he dies for man. The fittest place for a hog is evidently Chicago. For every minute of time, night and day, all the year round, 13 of them die for man at that place of slaughter. Chicago has, moreover, three steel rail mills within the city limits and a fourth within 30 miles. Their combined capacity exceeds 500,000 tons annually, sufficient to put a light steel rail girdle round the earth. There will probably be about as many steel rails made in and about Chicago alone next year as one-half the total rail product of Great Britain. Her coat of arms should be Barry of alternate steel rails and pine planks proper. Overall, a pig rampant. Gules. Motto, the whole hog. San Francisco is another mushroom. In 1844, 50 people were settled in log huts on a barren tract of the Pacific coast. A few whalemen and northeast traders occasionally called at this settlement and bartered food and clothing for tallow, hides, and horns. Gradually, the embryo village grew, and in 1847, certain plots of ground on the waterfront were sold. 
the prices ranging from 10 pounds to 20 pounds per lot. Six years later, such was the rapid enhancement of values, inferior lots brought from 1,600 pounds to 3,200 pounds, from 20 pounds to 2,000 pounds in 14 years, for small building plots bringing 240,000 pounds equal to 60,000 pounds per block. This was in the palmy days depicted by Colonel Mulberry Sellers, when you had but to lay out a town site into lots, every one of them a corner lot, and sit down and figure just how much money you wanted and then rake it in. Thirty-seven years sufficed to raise the settlement of 50 persons to a magnificent city with a quarter of a million inhabitants. The bartering of a few hides has grown into an annual trade exceeding 20 millions sterling. Jersey City, opposite New York, furnishes another example of rapid city growth. In 1840, the population was only 3,072. In 1880, it was 120,722. But Brooklyn, the corresponding suburb on the other side of New York Harbor, has eclipsed every city except Chicago. Its population of 12,000 in 1830, having grown to 566,000 in 1880. The growth of Cleveland, Ohio has not been slow. In 1830, it had only 1,000 inhabitants. Now, it boasts 160,000. The finest avenues of residences are in this city. After seeing all that the rest of the world has to offer in that respect, I pronounce Euclid and Prospect Avenues in this Lake City of Cleveland the grandest and most beautiful though the smaller Prospect Avenue in Milwaukee and Delaware Avenue in Buffalo and that in Detroit are very handsome indeed and are open for second and third prizes. The city of Milwaukee, with a present population of 125,000, consisted in 1834 of two log houses. In 1835, it was laid out as a village and the next year we find it described as a hamlet of about 200 inhabitants. At that time, the only roads leading into the city were a few Indian trails. Once in a while, a wagon came winding through from Chicago. But even at this infantile age, Milwaukee had begun to display the enterprise which has continued to distinguish it. In 1840, the town could boast of one brick building, a small one-story dwelling house. There were then 11 stores in the place. During the next 10 years, the population increased from 1,712 to 20,061. In 1841 began the shipment of grain, a trade which has since attained an enormous development. 
In that year, 4,000 bushels of wheat, the first ever sent out of Wisconsin, was exported. But such was the imperfect provision for loading that this small shipment required three days to put on board ship. The trade thus begun grew apace, and three years later, we find that Mr. Higby, a pioneer merchant, imported a grain warehouse from Sheboygan. The character of this structure is shown by the fact that it was afterward carried about to several other places. The whole receipts for grain shipments at Milwaukee in that year did not equal those received in a single day 15 years later, or, remarkable fact, in a single hour at present. The receipts of grain at Milwaukee now approximate 40 million bushels a year. It is taken out of ships and cars, carried to the top of the elevators, and weighed and poured into bags and bins at the rate of 7,000 bushels an hour without any manual labor. Automatic machines are the giants who do the work. End of chapter 3, part 1.